The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 6 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas. 10 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. in Paris, midnight in Kiev, which the Western media now spell with a Y. Why? Beats me. Uh, 1 a.m. in Moscow, where Putin is running out of socks to laugh off. Half past one in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who move to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 3.45 a.m. in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who move to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 6 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. I'm terribly sorry about that. 9 a.m. in Sydney. Far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri, and Saturday, oh wait a minute, not Saturday, uh, is it Saturday? Can't be Saturday, what is it already? It's uh, Well, it's even late, it might even be Sunday afternoon, can that be possible for our listeners in the Pacific? But wherever you are, we welcome you to our Clubland Q&A, let us get to it, Mark Stein Club members ask the questions. Uh, any of the seven and a half billion people around the planet are free to listen to the show. So if you have no desire to ask a question, you don't need to become a Mark Stein Club member. Uh, but I thank our club members, as always, for sending in questions. Peter, from what he describes as free Florida, and that is certainly true by comparison to the rest of the union. Peter says... Mark, I'm enjoying your GB News show. It's such a welcome break from American telly. Question. As is now apparent, the major internet platforms from GoFundMe to Facebook can no longer be relied upon by conservatives. Is it possible for the right to develop an entirely separate ecosystem from banking to entertainment to education? Is this where we need to be? Oh, from a separate ecosystem from banking to entertainment uh, to education. Uh, what about what, what about the woke military? We might we might actually need a separate military uh, too. Uh, what about the IRS uh, tormenting uh, Tea Party types? Do you think we might need a what you're talking about here? In the words of my old chum Tim Rice, is a whole new world, uh, and. Uh, that's a difficult thing to build in short order, isn't it? I, years ago, very late at night, when we were both a little in our cups, I remember chastising Mrs. Thatcher 
for uh, not doing... It was a sort of country house weekend type of thing. Uh, I, we were by the fireplace with snifters. Very civilised, except that I was in... Both of us were in a sort of tetchy mood. And I said... Uh, I complained to her about not doing anything to reform education, which turns all our children into lefties. Uh, and she looked at me rather frostily and she said, well, if you, if you don't mind, I was busy with the Falklands and the miners' strike. There's always something. And the, what's happened is that the politics plays on the surface and the people who have cost you your country are beavering away in all the places that matter. So that when Peter talks about banking to entertainment to education, there isn't a lot less left. He talks about the major internet platforms from GoFundMe to Facebook that can no longer, as he puts it, be relied upon by conservatives. Well, they never really could, but something has changed very quickly just since all these things started, really in the last decade. Uh, what happened is that tech types, techie types, uh, came up with these so-called platforms, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and and they weren't and the, being the kind of people they were, they weren't terribly political. But uh, as they developed, they attracted the attentions of political people, so that regardless of what. Mark Zuckerberg or that weird beard who's now departed Twitter or the guys who originally set up GoFundMe, uh, all those things are now uh, monitored and operated by young people on the left. And oftentimes uh, they're just they're just monitored monitored by AI that plugs in certain words, so you can't use so certain words like patriot or MAGA or whatever you like will attract uh, the interest of people who then monitor them uh, by uh, manually, uh, as it were. So the nature of those beasts has changed a little. And what is interesting to me is GoFundMe, because it defies the usual business model. If you live in a small town, uh, as I have for, for many years in New Hampshire, you learn, uh, you learn the rhythms of it quickly. Now, nobody, for example, who wants to get onto the school board or who wants to uh, get onto the select board, uh, the, the two principal bodies that run the town, None of them have party labels. Uh, but you notice, for example, that businesses and uh, local businesses, the guy or even local farms, the guy who runs the general store doesn't usually want to get on the select board because that means that half the town will be annoyed with him for something he's doing. Uh, doesn't usually want to get onto the school board because that means half the town will be berating him about the school board budget as they're buying their cup of coffee uh, and a uh, and and a breakfast sandwich in the morning or whatever. So the, it used to be understood that if you were in business, you you your profit margins were such that you needed you basically couldn't afford to annoy fifty percent of uh, your potential customers. That's not the way for GoFundMe 
or for uh, or for Facebook. They can actually. They are they are becoming wealthy and powerful, but between beyond the dreams of almost any businesses that have existed in human history. And they can afford to choose their customers. So, for example, GoFundMe sat there watching the 10 million bucks uh, tick up in support of the Canadian truckers and waited until it got big enough and then just yanked the rug out from under them. That's not something you would... They're, they're quite explicitly now saying they don't want your business. They're operating in league with the governments and government agencies that want to crush you. I mean, this is basically textbook fascism. Uh, you, you've, you've got a merger of the state and powerful corporate interests. And when powerful corporate interests... People usually think of as, uh, you know, oil companies or whatever. I wish. These are, these are the most powerful of all corporate interests, and they control access uh, to, to knowledge. To knowledge. Essentially, well, if, this is why I can't stand listening to most of the rubbish that passes for political uh, discourse, because on the right, it's always one step behind. They're always going on about communists uh, in the way that the left is always going on about Hitler, because in a stupid world, these are the only baddies either side has ever heard of. And, and it's not, it doesn't really make any sense, because we're, we're trying to compare it to models 100 years ago that did not have the technological reach to crush you in every aspect of of your life as these bodies are doing. And in particular, uh, it's much more efficient if you're a totalitarian uh, actually to outsource uh, the crushing of political opposition uh, to freelancers, uh, to, to private interests. And it's worked out brilliantly for them. Now, should we try and you know, should we tr develop an entirely separate ecosystem? Uh, we may be too late for that, Peter. It may be time to develop uh, entirely separate countries because there's, the, 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 there's not sufficient agreed reality. You know, if you think those Canadian truckers are villains as, as most... Well, let me put it... Let me, let me back up a minute. The space to compete for is the large group of people who are broadly uninterested in politics, which is, uh, I would say, at least 50%. And the problem is, is that if you have limited interest in politics and even less interest in politicians, I mean, I have no interest in politicians. Have you ever met any of them? Most of them are boring as hell. I wouldn't, you know, so, so the idea of devoting your life to commenting on the doings of Mitch McConnell is exceedingly depressing, uh, and no sane person would wish to do it. And the problem then arises is that for the 50% of people who are basically apathetic and uninterested in politics, even if they go and uh, cast a ballot for somebody every couple of years or whatever, 
they do that in order that they don't have to think about the the stuff in between time. And most and the problem here is that the fifty percent of the people who are apathetic about politics, uninterested in politics, don't want to hear about politics, don't want to find out who Mitch McConnell is, because somehow they intuit that if they ever did have a firm grasp on who Mitch McConnell is, he would bore the bloody pants off them. The trouble is that 50% of, uh, broadly speaking, apolitical people default to the left on any number of things from COVID to climate change uh, to whatever. And that's usually because uh, the... Uh, the, uh, the 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 center of the culture tells them that that is the default position. You know, oh yeah, I'm terribly worried about climate change. Can we move on to uh, talking about uh, Kim Kardashian now? Oh yeah, yeah, the COVID. Oh yes, no, I'm I'm uh, completely responsible. I'm going to get my 27th uh, jab today. I think it's I I follow the science, and so naturally I'm I'm so excited. I've already booked my 28th jab, and and it's getting to that 50% of people who are. Who are uh, who are totally apathetic? That is uh, and uninterested. That is where you save. That is where you save the country. Now I'm all for having a so-called conservative alternative to GoFundMe and a so-called conservative alternative to Facebook and a so-called alternative to the entertainment system and the education system and all the rest of it. But we've left it awfully late to start. John Barrett says, "Hi, Mark. What recourse do the Canadian truckers now have to stop vaccine mandates? At least in the U.S." An appeal could be made to federal courts citing various provisions of the Constitution. Well, you can do that in Canada too, uh, actually, John, in fairness. It's a little different, but there are, uh, you know, it's a, it's a little different, but you can actually, you can actually uh, do that. Uh, and so John goes, doesn't our Constitution protect us from the tyranny of the ma- majority? Sorry, I'm waving the Constitution. Look, I I hear this again and again, and we're way beyond that. I mean, this is where uh, this this is this is where I think I've I've given my view of why the constitution is fetishized the way it is. All countries have constitutions. Some countries have unwritten constitutions. Some countries have. Uh, boilerplate constitutions. If you look at the 1848 uh, responsible government in uh, Nova Scotia, which is where it all began in the British Empire, that's basically just been photocopied around the world uh, from Belize to Mauritius to Tuvalu to you you name it across a century and three quarters. Because in... Because... um, because a constitution, well, for a start, all forms of government presume men of virtue. If you don't have men of virtue, uh, if you have people like Justin Trudeau on the one hand or Joe Biden on the other, it's all bollocks. And the problem with the, uh, the U.S. constitution is that most of the time, uh, for example, John, your point 
And again, I say this with respect because the, Consti the, the Constitution of the United States has lasted obviously a lot longer than the constitutions of France or Germany or Greece or uh, Italy or Portugal or you name it. But the, but the fact is, I'm, I'm supposed to get excited because people are bringing abortion cases now before the Supreme Court. So there's a possibility that Roe versus Wade, which has enabled the mass murder of American babies on a scale unknown anywhere else on the planet, that's your shame, that's your bloodbath, that's what uh, every American is up to his neck in. The, the, appalling, uh, the appalling industrial-scale abortion mill licensed by Roe versus Wade. And I'm supposed to get excited now because there's a possibility that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, who gave us Roe versus Wade? Wait a minute. Let me have a think about it. I've slightly slipped my... It's on the tip of my tongue somewhere. Wasn't it a, like a, a couple of uh, those... Fellas in uh, black robes, what are they called? The 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 judge judges. What 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 was the name of that uh, courthouse that came up with Roe versus Wade again? You know. So basically, the Supreme Court, John. I don't want to keep flogging this thing. We have a difference of opinion, and uh, you know, may the best man win. But the fact is, people get excited because the Constitution uh, enables the Supreme Court now to overturn crappy decisions of the Supreme Court then. Oh, gee whiz, thank you for that. And uh, I'll give you another example, the, 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 uh, an example that I think is actually more telling. People are excited about these cases with uh, affirmative action that are uh, headed to the Supreme Court because affirmative action... Uh, is an, which is what enables uh, Harvard and Yale and all the other famous universities to discriminate uh, against, uh, uh, basically against Chinese people in favor of black people. Uh, and, uh, and that is now coming before the court and people are excited as to which of the, they they understand that because of all the epic battles in recent years, there were supposedly six conservative justices and three uh, lefty ones, and so there ought to be at least five votes to throw out um, affirmative action because it's become something totally different uh, from what it was intended to be when it uh, it was originally set up in a different world to ensure that blacks didn't get discriminated against in American college applications. And, and instead, it's become such a complex world because there are now large numbers of Asian students who get discriminated against by American universities. Well, what's going to happen for that is that five judges are going to torture the language of the Constitution in order to find some contorted pretzel of a theory that will enable them to retain the bulk of, uh, of, of affirmative action outcomes uh, while making it look as if they've uh, ameliorated the unfairness in some peripheral way.
But basically, that's John Roberts. Operation Affirmative Action is to find is to find a way of torturing the language into upholding it, because John Roberts will take the view that America couldn't politically deal with the result of having purely merit-based admissions to Harvard and Yale. So people getting excited about that being overturned are not living in John Roberts' head because he's already ahead of you figuring... You know, I said this years ago, that when it comes to uh, whatever you want to take, same-sex marriage... uh, the approach of, say, Ireland uh, or uh, uh, Australia, which held referenda, or um, in London, where they uh, voted for it in Parliament under David Cameron, it, whatever you feel about the issue, it's more honest. Uh, they basically said, oh, well, we've changed our mind. So, Fred, go ahead and marry Nigel. Uh, That's all. We've changed our mind. That's it. Nothing more to say. Whereas the American way, if you read that decision on same-sex marriage, it's absolute idiocy. And what it does, and again, just to come back to this, because I get all this mail about it, what it does, John, is it invokes the Constitution in order to pervert it. And America's the only country that does that. You know, France in the days when you had your second empires and fourth republics every 20 minutes just said, oh, yeah, no, uh, that constitution, uh, the sell-by date is a week on Thursday, and then we'll get another one. But America uh, invokes invokes the Constitution principally to pervert it uh, on on big issues and and you know we can we can have a bet on how that affirmative action thing is we can have a bet if you if you seriously think john roberts is uh, is going to be want to be the guy who votes to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. Andrew says, Mark, putting aside the coronavirus mandates, do you think that trucker convoys and trucker blockades will become a permanent political tradition in Canada as they are in France and some other places? In the 2000s, we saw the politicization of pipelines, now trucking. Are railways and airways next? We are in a situation that was unimaginable in 2020 and unfamiliar to Canadians since the 1970s. Yet the politicians are trying to express it in terms of woke boilerplate. Will this all go away soon and be forgotten or will this new polarization and politicization fester on for decades? Nothing's going to fester on for decades, Andrew. We are approaching the end. Uh, I I don't know any other way to put it. We are approaching the end of what we had thought of as as, uh, Western societies. If you think of how much has changed, uh, if you think of of America taking down the statue of Teddy Roosevelt, if you think of Canada wholesale trashing, of uh, of its statues and its history. What's been done to Sir John A. Macdonald, without whom there would be no Canada, is absolutely disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. If you think what emerges from that is going to be anything that any Canadian, uh, you know, from the 50s or 60s would recognize as Canada, if you're thinking it would be anything that uh, Justin's dad 
would recognize as Canada. Um, I think uh, I, 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 th I think you're being you're, we are near the end. We are near the end in many Western countries. Um, now, the this French situation, you're right. If French truckers strike, they bring the country to a standstill and the government surrenders. And that, that's because they started doing that back in the days when politicians felt they had to be responsive uh, to the masses and were particularly afraid of organized labor. The contempt, the open contempt for, that Justin Trudeau has for these truckers. You know, truckers are, are interesting. I think I said this somewhere in the last week and a half or so, either on telly or on radio or, or uh, maybe on, even on one of our Q&As. But what's interesting to me is that uh, truck drivers are not uh, a, 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 a not aggressive, outspoken people. They're not even like that annoying person who sits in the cubicle next to you at your cubicle jobs, processing, sending a W-2 to the guy who said he wanted a 1099 and then sending an RU-12 back to him because the 1099 wasn't filled. You know, those kind of... If you, th those kind of jobs in the cubicles of a socialize, you chit, you're chit-chatting with people all the time, blah, blah, blah. Truckers, truckers sit in their trucks and drive for hundreds of miles, and then they stop at a truck stop. And, and it's a solitary job for the most part, although it can be very convivial at a truck stop. But it's a solitary job, and you get used to becoming to sitting in your rig and uh, making a few monosyllables when you're at the truck stop, and then sitting in your rig and saying nothing again and again and again. So for truckers of all people to actually make a huge statement is very new in Canada or in North America. And when Justin Trudeau then starts going on about the Islamophobia, the transphobia, the thisophobia, the thatophobia of these people whom he hasn't even met, he won't even go out. It would actually be quite a, an act of courage were he to stroll stride out of the Rideau Hall cottage, which, by the way, the prime minister shouldn't be in. It's totally inappropriate. Um, it's a dangerous uh, merging of uh, head of government and head of state. He shouldn't be on the grounds of Rideau Hall, but he's living there for because his house is being repaired or whatever. So he, if he were to come out of Rideau Cottage and just walk up the street and talk to those, people would think, oh, you know, and nobody's going to beat him up or anything. They might ask him a few rude questions. But instead, he's quite, he doesn't have to do that. And he doesn't want to do that because he's damned them so much that, uh, that anything he did which in, would involve actually encountering them would humanize them more than just these mythical... I mean, it's absolutely... It's incredible to me. Like that Washington Post cartoon, the guy putting fascism on all the trucks... Yeah, as everybody pointed out to him, you sit you sit in an office and you do drawings all day long, and you can't actually you you're so disconnected. This is where the class stratification in America um, 
has now uh, and and indeed in other places, but uh, he can't actually imagine them as human beings. Fascists, he says, fascists. No, oddly enough, it's government in league with huge corporations such as Facebook and GoFundMe that are the textbook definition of uh, fascism. So, so something has changed. The contempt for the workers, the contempt for the working man, is really, I think, the end point of the process that so-called uh, the New Democrats uh, under Bill Clinton, New Labour under Tony Blair. Do you remember this was all the rage? I think I did a joke. <laughs> you know, Bill Clinton, uh, New Democrats, and uh, Tony Blair, New Labour. And then Colin Powell said he was trying to reach out to moderate elements in the Taliban. And for a while I was doing jokes about New Taliban, just like New Democrats and New Labour. And and Justin Trudeau is the end point of that. That's when they those guys decided we're more interested in immigrants and urban niche identities uh, such as uh, gays or Muslims or whatever than in the great solid laboring masses. Uh, screw them, as somebody said. I think uh, in uh, 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 an advisor to Hillary Clinton said they're not coming back. And, and, and Justin Trudeau agrees with that, which is why he feels free to damn them. So it's not going to fester for decades because we won't have decades. Richard Malaby says, Afternoon, Mark. Love the club. Really enjoying the long-form interviews on GB News. You know those soft, lily-livered Americans you're always going on about who still watch sport? Oh, yeah, okay, okay. I don't. I was thinking you meant me going on about the Constitution. I don't think people, uh, I don't think uh, uh, Americans who go on about the Constitution are lily livered. I, 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 I think they're just expecting it to do things that it can't do in today's America. Um, but uh, sports, yes, I'm merciless on. I mean. It, <laughs> Uh, even though the leagues themselves hate their fans. Yes, why would you give money? I mean, I love that. Oh, you shouldn't be giving money to go fund me and uh, you shouldn't be giving money to Ben and Jerry's, but uh, I'm just off now to watch an NFL game. <laughs> well, I'm one of those suckers, says Richard Mallaby, at least for one particular team in one particular league, but I digress. Well, shame on you, you lily-livered Richard Mallaby. Uh, but Richard says, I've always loved the Olympics, but this time around I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. How disgraceful is is it that our politicians and heads of the U.S. Olympic Committee either won't acknowledge the human rights abuses in China or offer some vacant answer about remaining politically neutral? We're talking about people in camps. Yeah, they're actually committed. They haven't stopped the genocide for the duration of the games. You know, NBC is particularly interesting like this because NBC might, might as well just be a wholly owned subsidiary of Chairman Xi's Politburo right now. I mean, they're, ga they're giving him a huge valentine. Now, the last time uh, China held the Olympics, it was the Summer Olympics in, uh, what, what was it, 2008. Uh, 2008. And the guy who led the parade, everyone's, yeah, here's, here's the, here was the thing on NBC. 
what's her name, that uh, chicky on the... T- uh, Savannah Guthrie. Savannah Guthrie. She should be on the Politburo. She's doing such a sterling job. She was noting that the person who uh, lit the Olympic flame was a Uyghur. And this was Chairman Xi's way of reaching out uh, and offering an olive leaf and uh, showing to the world that he respected uh, the Uyghurs because he'd asked a Uyghur uh, to like the... No, this is just Chairman Xi's black sense of humor. He hasn't stopped killing the Uyghurs. (laughs) He's killing them. But don't worry about all the ones he's killing the thousands and thousands, because there's one little Uyghur, oh, who gets to go to the Olympic ceremony and light the Olympic flame. You know, that happened last time round. They had some big Uyghur flag bearer leading the 2008 parade when they all come out. And this guy is actually now living in the United States. And and his father was arrested about 10 minutes after the kid left China. And he hasn't heard from his father in six years. None of his family has heard from him. They can't speak to him. They don't know where he is. That was the guy who carried the flag in the 2008 parade. That was the Johnny Uyghur of the last Chinese Olympics. And now the Johnny Uyghur of this Chinese Olympics is lighting the flame. And Savannah Guthrie, Comrade Guthrie, is saying this is, shows the moderate face that Chairman Xi is presenting. To, you, you never know. Uh, it's, it's, un, it's unbelievable, that. Uh, Greg the Kiwi writes, I always love, uh, I'm, I so miss the cruises because Greg the Kiwi would be bounding all around the ship if you're thinking, my word, we're in rough waters, uh, well, it's it's how can it be so? How can it be so rough? We're just uh, cruising up to a, well, it's nothing to do with uh, the water. It's Greg the Kiwi bounding enthusiastically round the ship and destabilizing it somewhat. Uh, I do hope I will live long enough to see Greg once again. He says, "Hi, Mark." Tremendous show on GB. Here in New Zealand, we are experiencing a pitiful display of governance. I support several organizations that expose this government and they are valuable. But the dictums just keep on coming. Is it all part of the great reset ambitions of the world's elite and powerful that infect all small economies like ours? Are we powerless against them? Uh, Cheers, says Greg. Well, I don't know how small an economy New Zealand's is in the scheme of things. You could be smaller. You could be like the Solomon Islands, where you're basically just taking orders off the fax machine from Peking these days. Um, but that seems to be the choice, that you, you're, you're either taking orders direct from Chairman Xi or you're getting them direct from that Bond villain ski lodge in Davos. And oddly enough, uh, Whoever you're actually getting the orders from, whether it's uh, uh, Klaus Watnot's uh, fax machine in Switzerland or it's Chairman Xi's in Peking, they both ultimately serve the interests of of China. Um, the the funny The funny thing is, Greta Greta Thunberg said. Uh, connect it 
actually COVID and climate change explicitly the other day. I take it that's just because she's a 12-year-old schoolgirl who hasn't been to school for a big lot of years, so didn't know she wasn't meant to say that out loud. But I think it's getting... The, the, the need to keep COVID going, which now manifests itself in Washington, in Ottawa, in Canberra, in Paris, the need to keep COVID going uh, tells you uh, I, I tells you that this is this can't really just be uh, happening haphazardly. I mean, it really can't. If they wanted us to think that it's all part of a big globalist conspiracy, they're going the right way about it. Uh, indeed, even I would say, even I think I've said this on the telly um, in London, that even the uh, Partygate stuff with Boris arises principally from uh, his, by the standards of the world, he's not Sweden, but uh, compared, compared to a lot of other, certainly compared to Greg in New Zealand, um, Boris has and, and actually uniquely in the UK because it's not like that in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland but he, he ha he's been ameliorating the COVID and uh, the, uh, the word is that the Partygate stuff is just basically uh, to, to, uh, to screw him over for that Kate Smythe uh, the doyen of our Australian club members uh, down in New South Wales says, Mark, in your Royal Watch segment, you overlooked to mention that the king-in-waiting is also a committed Islamophile who wanted to be known as defender of all faiths rather than just defender of the faith as in the Church of England of which uh, he will be the supreme governor uh, one day. Um, the king in waiting is also committed Islamophile in addition to his long-standing climate crisis campaigning. Only eight years <laughs> to save the planet in 2009, revised to 10 years <laughs> in 2020. Uh, Prince Charles was the first notable public figure to refer to the Great Reset in June 2020 when he convened the 50th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. Yeah, I can't actually... You know, the... the Queen, in some ways, always has a little bit of self-doubt gnawing away at her inside her. You know, in theory, uh, kings reign by divine right. And that's a little unfair, isn't it? Because why did God pick you as, as opposed to that nice uh, chap who seems rather smart, but he's living in the peasant's hovel on the edge of the estate? Why, why was it you and not him? And the, the queen uh, uh, has always had some part of her where she's uh, aware of that, in part because um, in, she lives, you know, by certainly compared to, say, Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos, she lives a relatively modest uh, life. The, the Prince of Wales, by comparison, his solution to that, uh, you know, that great unanswerable question at the heart of every, why, why me? Why me, God? 
Uh, why do I reign by divine right and not the guy at 27B Elm Street? The Prince of Wales solution to that is that it must be because he's the brainiest guy on earth and he's got all the good ideas and he gets together with people with lots of other good ideas in Davos. I don't even think the Prince of Wales should be appearing at Davos, actually. Not appropriate. Um, and so when he uh, started talking about the Great Reset, it's exactly the kind of big idea that appeals to a man uh, whose central purpose in life is to wait for his mum to die. And I understand that's psychologically problematic, but the way His Royal Highness has dealt with it is to say, well, uh, this this is a peri this period is a testing one for me, and so I have to think big thoughts, and so it would help if I got together with another group of people who also have big thoughts. That's that Swiss that Swiss fellow with the Bond villain uh, uh, ski uh, ski lodge. Yes, he's got big thoughts. He's got big thoughts, and uh, the uh, that fellow who invented the thing where they post all the cat pictures uh, on the computer. He, he seems to have a lot of big thoughts too. Yes. So if all of us people with big thoughts get together, then we can solve the great global problems, which is not where anybody lives. Whenever one, anyone's talking about global this, global that, people generally have local problems. You know, it's it, it, it rained a lot and your bridge got washed out and now you need to put up a new bridge. Oh, that's we're, we're starting a, a new uh, fund uh, for ecologically friendly uh, bridge building and you can apply for a grant from the fund and uh, maybe we'll uh, give you some of that money and get you a new bridge in 40 years time. This is it. This is the way they do it. I understand, says Kate, the reluctance of respected commentators to wander into conspiracy theory territory. But what do you make, notwithstanding your on-air speculation about Partygate, I think that is, a, I think that is, a, if you mean men uh, and women, because <laughs> there's a lot of evil women these days, more than there used to be, uh, I would say. And uh, they meet in, in uh, closed rooms by invitation only and make plans. And that certainly happened in Partygate. But what do you make of the growing indications that COVID-19 has been an attack on the free world by the China class? And by this they mean... Uh, Kate means all the people who are owned by China, and that can mean public health officials, uh, which, again, until the COVID, we didn't think of something that had been targeted. You know, the great, the, one of the fantastic things that we should have learned from the last two years is that serious countries don't waste their time with carrier groups. Uh, they they take over the world without firing a shot. That way, you know, the, the, the non-shock, non-orway, where you just do it quietly, buying up this guy here and that guy over there. Um, so Kate, Kate says, uh, the growing indications that COVID-19 has been an attack on the free world by the China class, as opposed to just China. 
and that a coordinated response to a pandemic has been used to advance global authoritarianism by a globalist ruling class aligned with Chinese-style crony capitalism aided by similar-minded elected leaders in the woke West. Uh, P.S. The global role of media and social media in terms of narrative control seems undeniable looking at events in Ottawa. Yeah, you know, I should... I I ought to, to say something here because that's a... That's a, a serious point. And I, in a sense, I, I put that aside because it's, it, would be, it, it would be too big for the kind of uh, books we used to write 100 and 200 years ago. Uh, because it's, it's simply too big. In the end, you want uh, there to be an answer that is human-sized. Uh, even in a in a conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah, they're all meeting around the table in the Spectre boardroom, but there's only nine of them. And I think what we have here is, uh, and and again, the the reason why I think it's difficult to grasp is because people have been saying this for so long. You know, they've been the prominent figures have been play, saying, for example, the climate is more important than democracy. David Suzuki in Canada said that a lot. Uh, David Suzuki is a beloved Canadian, far more beloved <laughs> by Canadians than I will ever be. Uh, and he's garlanded with all the Order of Canada stuff and all the rest of it. Uh, so that when he says it, we we sort of assume... Oh, he's he's sort of gone a bit too far. He doesn't really mean it. Uh, but yes, he means it. And all the people who love him think he means it. So people have been saying this out loud. People have been saying uh, the other fella, the Bill Nye, the science. Oh, people love Bill Nye, the science guy. They watch him in school. They all love him. Blum, 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 blum. Uh, and he's another one who thinks that the climate trumps democracy. Why would you say these things if you didn't believe it? And so uh, if you thought, for example, that this was a trial run, what's going on? You know, if you were doing gain-of-function research, gain-of-function research uh, at Wuhan with American taxpayer dollars, uh, to see what would happen, because you want to experiment with what might happen if you made coronavirus a bit more lethal, a bit more contagious. We're doing con- Why do you need to do that, by the way? Uh, are you doing that with AIDS so that you don't get it by having penetrative sex anymore? You can get it with just a little bit of light petting? Just like sitting on the sofa and sticking your arm around someone, you can pick up the... Do you do it with AIDS? Uh, So they've done it with the... uh, So they're doing the gain of function. How hard would it then be to say, well, let's uh, just as an experiment, let's uh, let the cat out of the bag and uh, see how fast that cat gets. Now, one way to look at it is to look at Savannah Guthrie. You know, Savannah Guthrie doesn't think she's an evil person, but she's rationalized the dead Uyghurs uh, to the point where she can actually serve as Chairman Xi's uh, PR guy. 
and I take it she doesn't care about the Uyghurs. We had some guy, some co-owner of some wretched, unwatchable American sports team say he didn't care about the Uyghurs. And then people said to him, you know, that's I, it's true. None of us care about the Uyghurs. But it's a bit blunt to put it like that. So would you mind just walking it back a bit? So he walked it back a bit. But the interesting thing I find is if Savannah Guthrie and the sports guy uh, don't mind all the Uyghurs being in camps, in the end, they won't mind you being in the camps. That's the point of it. And I think it is getting, when you look at the reaction to the unvaccinated, you know, where they're basically calling for them to be stripped uh, of their citizenship, as Macron sees it, uh, to be uh, specially taxed, as the Premier of Quebec sees it, uh, to be put in jail, as the government of Austria sees it. You know, it's all on the same continuum as harvesting the Uyghur body parts. And so we're, re we're not talking about, we're, you know, we're on that conveyor belt. It's just how far they want to take it all. Uh, that is... Uh, uh, that is uh, a little more big picture that I uh, am inclined to get this uh, this uh, early in the show. It's Mark Slides Club Lad Q and A special weekend edition live around the planet. Uh, we'll have more of your questions coming up, but first, a sense of perspective. Keep up to date with the past on the Hundred Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A new pope. A dead picture personality and a man not as old as he looked. It's February 1922. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update just eight months ago, June 3rd, 1921, Pope Benedict XV created three new cardinals and joked with them, Today I gave you the red hat but soon it will be the white for one of you. Sooner than he thought, one of that trio is now the new pontiff, Achille Ratti, the Archbishop of Milan. The papal conclave has voted on the 14th ballot to elect him Benedict's successor. Cardinal Ratti will take the name Pius XI. His first act on assuming the papacy was to restore the traditional public blessing from the balcony. Urbi et orbi to the city and to the world, which popes have eschewed for half a century since the loss of Rome to the Kingdom of Italy in 1870. The Washington Naval Conference has ended with the signing of a naval treaty, the Nine Power Treaty on China, and half a dozen other disarmament treaties between the great powers. King George V, in his speech from the throne to the British Parliament, has welcomed the agreements. His Majesty's government has announced that as part of the terms, Great Britain will be returning some 300 square miles of Chinese territory, including the city of Port Edward, to the government government of China in 1930. The Soviet newspaper Pravda has published the results of what is known as an opinion poll, a survey of its readers. They are opposed to the decision by Vladimir Lenin to attend an upcoming economic conference in Genoa because they fear he is putting himself at risk of assassination.
Lieutenant Colonel Newcomb and Lieutenant Colonel Pollet, the co-chairs of the Anglo-French Border Commission, have issued their final report on the boundaries between the British mandates of Palestine and Mesopotamia, or Iraq, and the French mandates of Syria and the Lebanon. There's been a bit of tweaking. The entire Sea of Galilee will now be in Palestine, while Syria will gain Cuneta to avoid dividing the lands of the Emir Mahmoud el Fawl. In the Indian town of Charichara, a mob has killed 22 policemen by trapping them in the police station and then setting it alight. The murderous attack came after the police had fired on a crowd of protesters, killing three. How is peace in the soon-to-be Dominion of the Irish Free State holding? In Killarney, an officer of the Royal Irish Constabulary was killed in a clash between the RIC and Irish Republican Army members who do not accept the Anglo-Irish Agreement and Mr Collins' provisional government. Violence is spreading across the island. The Federation of Central America does not look long for this world. It was only formally established on January 19th as a union of four nations. A little more than a fortnight later, it is down to just two nations. El Salvador and Honduras have quit, leaving only Guatemala and Costa Rica. My word, you do look weird. Your cheeks are all sunk and your colours all gone. The death of aspiring actress Virginia Rapp at Fatty Arbuckle's party in San Francisco last year has convulsed the nation and filled American newspapers with accounts of rampant orgies, sexual perversions and murder cover-ups in the picture business. Nevertheless, at the second homicide trial of Mr Arbuckle, his lawyers felt so confident that they had discredited much evidence from the first trial that he was not called on to testify. That may have been a mistake. The jury deadlocked 10-2 in favour of conviction. So, a second mistrial, and the only question now is, will there be a third trial? Readers of the lurid lives of photoplay personalities have moved on to the strange case of the late director and actor William Desmond Taylor, who was found dead in the living room of his home in the affluent Westlake neighbourhood of Los Angeles. News spread, a crowd gathered and entered the bungalow, and from their midst, a man purporting to be a doctor stepped forward, examined the body and declared that the 49-year-old Mr Taylor had died of a stomach hemorrhage. The doctor has since disappeared, and it was only later, when Mr Taylor's body was being removed, that anybody noticed the bullet hole in his back. Police have no shortage of suspects, including both his present and former valet. DeWitt Wallace was wounded in the late World War and spent four months in a French hospital reading magazines every day. That gave him an idea, and when he returned to Minnesota, he and his soon-to-be wife, Lila Bell, conceived the idea of a publication that would present 31 articles, one for each day of the month, condensed from their original longer versions in other publications. The first issue of that magazine is now 
out. It is called Reader's Digest. And Mr. and Mrs. Wallace are confident that they can make up to $5,000 a year from their new publication. Good luck with condensing and digesting the new novel from the Irish writer James Joyce. It is called Ulysses and has just appeared not in London but in Paris at the Shakespeare and Company bookstore owned by Sylvia Beach. Miss Beach met Mr Joyce at a dinner party and he explained he was having difficulty finding any English publisher willing to publish the book. It is said to be difficult and modern. Miss Beach, however, arranged for Darantier, a publisher in Dijon, to print 1,000 numbered copies, and they are now in the front window of her bookshop. The Ford Motor Company has bought the ailing Lincoln Motor Company for $8 million in what is being called the most dramatic receiver's sale in the history of Detroit. So Henry Ford, the creator of mass-produced affordable automobiles, will now have his own luxury car division. Associates of Mr Ford say the purchase was made at the insistence of Mrs Ford, who is friends with Mrs Leland, wife of the president of the bankrupt Lincoln Company. There's a track winding back to an old fashioned along the road to Gandalga, where the blue gums are growing and the marmots is blowing beneath the sunny sky, where my daddy and to Gungadai, New South Wales, may be easier than flying there. Ray Pera made the first single-engined flight from England to Australia, for which he was awarded the Air Force Cross. It was also the first freight flight from England to Australia because he carried a bottle of whisky for Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes. He was confident he could also pull off the first flight around the perimeter of his country, but it has ended in failure. The Farman FE2 aeroplane crashed on takeoff from Boulder in Western Australia, and Mr. Pera and his cousin and co pilot Mark Pera are now in hospital. Are you familiar with the Checker? In just four years as Soviet Russia's secret police, they have slaughtered untold numbers of the Bolsheviks' enemies. It is not good news when the Czechists, in their distinctive garb of long black leather coats accessorized with Greek-style worry beads, show up at your door, as they boasted during the so-called Red Terror, quote, without mercy, without sparing, we will kill our enemies in scores of hundreds. Let them be thousands. Let them drown themselves in their own own blood. Let there be floods of blood of the bourgeoisie, more blood, as much as possible. And so it was. Now, however, the Bolshevik government has decided that the Cheka will be dissolved and replaced by the GIU, the State Political Directorate, under, one notes, the same director, Felix Zerzinski.
As one Russian checker goes, another checker is taking off. Morris Markin is a 28-year-old Jewish immigrant to America from Smolensk with big plans. He has bought Commonwealth Motors, another failed automobile company like Lincoln, and the Handley Knight chassis plant, and plans to move all their operations to the Dort Body plant in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where a renamed Checker Cab manufacturing company will make so-called Checker Cabs for taxi services in cities all across America. I'll be down to get you in a Checker taxi, honey. Mary Curie, the first person ever to win two Nobel Prizes, is now also the first woman to be elevated to any of France's academies of science. The pioneer of research into radioactivity has been elected to the Académie Nationale de Médecins. The Dowager Countess of Strathmore and Kinghorn lived to see the betrothal of her granddaughter, Lady Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, to the King's second son, His Royal Highness the Duke of York. She did not live to see the wedding. The Countess is dead at the age of 89. Field Marshal Prince Yamagata Aritomo was a great military commander, two-time Prime Minister of Japan, and the second most important figure in the country after the Emperor until just a few months ago. When he chose to object to the engagement of Crown Prince Hirohito to Princess Nagako because of the colour blindness prevalent in her family. Yamagata Aritomo is dead at 83. Christian de Vett was a Boer general, rebel leader, and briefly president of the Orange Free State. If you served in the British Army in the end stage of the Boer War, you will surely remember the Afrikaners' mocking parody of Sir Walter Scott's Bonnie Dundee. De Vett, he is mounted, he rides up the street, the English skedaddle and A1 retreat, the commander swearing they've got through the net that's been spread with such care for Christian de Vett. Then away to the hills, to the felt, to the rocks. Ere we own a usurper, we'll crouch with the fox. And tremble, false jingoes, amidst all your glee. Ye have not seen the last of my Mausers and me. Ah, but we have seen the last of Christian de Vett and his Mausers. He is dead on his farm at the age of 68, as General Smuts, Prime Minister of the Union of South Africa, put it in a cable to his widow, a prince and a great man has fallen today. John Butler Yeats was not only the father of the poet and dramatist William Butler Yeats, but a widely admired painter in his own right. He had no trouble getting commissions from patrons in England, Ireland, America, but he was a poor businessman and thus never financially secure. In 1907, he sailed for New York and never saw Ireland again, spending his last years in a boarding house on West 29th Street. Mr. Yates is dead at 82. 
Just a month ago in the New Year Honours, His Majesty the King was pleased to confer a baronetcy upon Alfred Bird, Member of Parliament for Wolverhampton West and proprietor of Bird's Custard Powder, the famous egg-free custard powder that bears his name. Sir Alfred did not enjoy his baronetcy long. He was struck by a motor car in Piccadilly and is dead at 72. Exactly was that? Chief John Smith was a Chippewa Indian who lived at Cass Lake, Minnesota, and had eight wives but sired no children from that octet, instead, adopting just one son. He was known to local whites as the Old Indian, very old. He claimed to have been born in 1784. He has now died, allegedly at the age of 137. Chief Smith was certainly extremely wrinkled, but he doesn't seem to remember anything before the spectacular Leonid meteor showers, the night the stars fell, of November 13th, 1833, when he would have been 49. It is odd not to remember anything before you're nearly 50. Based on that recollection, the Bureau of Indian Affairs asserts that the 137-year-old Indian was, in fact, a mere late nonagenarian. And that's the way of the world. February 1922. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. It's Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A live around the planet. It's great to have you with us. Uh, tomorrow, by the way, uh, we've got a corker of a Stein Song of the Week that you won't want to miss uh, in our radio version. Serenade Radio, uh, 5.30 p.m. GMT Sunday. That's uh, 12.30 Eastern Time in the Americas or 9.30 Pacific. And I hope you'll want to uh, tune in for that. Let's get back to your questions as we go around the world. Robert Meador says, Mr. Stein, if religion is the opiate of the masses, is it fair to conclude that Marxism, both political and cultural, is the opiate of the intelligentsia and ruling classes? Uh, I'm not, I'm always slightly uneasy about the term cultural Marxism. What, What you've heard in our 100 Years Ago show with respect to the Cheka 
is the the bloodthirsty commitment to the cause, even if that mound of corpses you have to build includes many on your own side. That aspect of, uh, certainly of Leninism, is, uh, is, is prevailing in our world today. Not yet literally a mountain of corpses, but it will get there. It will get there. Um, but I, but you know, again, I'm. Uh, I don't. Th- I think it's too glib to just keep going back. Oh, your Marx, your Hitler, your Hitler, your Marx. Uh, that Marx wasn't. Marx had an economic theory, but otherwise he was a would have struck you as a relatively normal chap if you'd met him in the pub. For example, he would not have wandered into. Uh, the ladies' changing room at the University of Pennsylvania and seen some big, hulking, broad-shouldered figure showering with the nice, petite co-eds and uh, with no breasts and hung like a stallion and said, wow, what a great-looking woman. He would have known uh, that the guy shaking the meat and two veg around the showers with all the cute co-eds was in fact a guy. And he would have wondered what the guy was doing there. And if you'd said, no, 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 that's a woman. What sort of hater are you to think that external genitalia, as we call them now, are anything to do with whether you're a man or a woman? So we're far nuttier than Marx. Then, then again, Uh, This is quite a big point to grasp, because we're in the tertiary syphilitic phase of Western civilization. We are completely bonkers. We have done things that Karl Marx, sitting there writing his uh, theory in the reading room of the British Library, would never, ever in a bazillion years have countenanced. So we have completely flown the coop. And I don't, I do think it's, I do think that at a certain, you know, even if you uh, disregard just, you know, patently idiotic things like a a certain uh, prominent uh, conservative figure in America going on about the Franklin School in Germany, (laughs) it always gives me a chuckle, that one, these ancient these ancient crit- critiques um, are insufficient to the madness of the age, because that that's what we are. We're mad. We're completely mad. And and the fact that it's e- it's easier to you know we've lived for two years walled up under, oh, lockdown, you can come out of lockdown for a bit. No, we're back in lockdown. You can't fly anywhere. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You can't even buy a new car because the cars are all sitting idle on the lot because the chips are all made in China. Oh, the chips are made in China. I thought it was just the viruses that are made in China. No, 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 the chips are made there too. We're completely, and, and, and uh, oh, really, That's I didn't know that. So, like, everything that's miserable about my life now, uh, the Omicron and uh, the fact that I can't get a new car, it's all made in China, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's all made in China. Uh, okay, great, I can't wait to switch on the telly and watch the Chinese Olympics. We're bonkers far beyond 
marks. The fact that you can, in this two-week period, the only thing that is occasionally you go to the grocery store and there's uh, the shelves are all bare, but there's one shelf in the middle of the store that, if you're lucky, still has seven items uh, on it. And those items, whatever they are, have been brought there by truckers. So China... China gave you the virus. China is the reason you can't have a new car. Uh, the truckers are the reason you've got some gruel from crap you like to eat tonight. Oh, OK, let's demonize the truckers. We're far madder than Marx. We're far madder than Marx. And as I said, just, just on that, you know, Marx didn't have any difficulty distinguishing men from women. We are nuts. Michael J. from Colorado writes, rigged, rigged the laptop from hell uh, and now red-handed. These are all recent books. Red-handed was uh, Peter Schweitzer, uh, who uh, uh, I had on my show the other day. The laptop from hell is by Miranda Devine, our chum from uh, Australia. Um and yet, and yet, says Michael, uh, despite all these books, the scales of justice only tip one way. If you're a Democrat, leftist, Marxist, anarchist, no need to worry why I haven't been able to write a check for over a year to any of the many conservative organizations and causes. Nothing seems to move the needle. From where and when will justice come, Mark? Well, it will have to be some mass or it will have to be a mass uh, event. In the in the end, um, we we we've had a lot of questions. Uh, I don't know whether it was for um, what was it for? Was it for last week's show? There were a couple I didn't get to um, about the basically about the media. You know what's what's happened to the media? And I was thinking about when I started in newspapers and of course the thing is even by then the american newspaper industry was dead you just had these mono dailies these gannett mono dailies in most towns you didn't really have some of the larger towns like uh, you know boston will support a broadsheet and a tabloid but you didn't have competitive newspapering in the way that you did in places that i've worked like london and even toronto and the interesting thing then, it was people were competing to get the story, competing to get the story. Now, insofar as there's any competition in the media, it's, it's, a, it's not a race to get the story. It's a race to determine what the story is. So that, for example, when something like the truckers breaks... Uh, the race is to demonize the truckers as haters and racists and Islamophobes and transphobes. So, so it's not a race to, oh, I've got to get the truckers, I've got to interview the truckers, I've got to get to see what it's like being with the truckers. There's a lady in Ottawa who says she's got a bunch of these truckers parked basically just outside. And she's been looking at them, and they're all very nice. And generally speaking, they turn in quite early, so they're not up uh, boogieing the night away and wrecking her life or whatever. She said, but the thing that she's noticed as she just started watching them day after day 
is that nobody from the media, she sees nobody with a microphone, nobody with a camera, nobody with a reporter's notebook come by and actually see who these people are. So she decided actually to go out among them and uh, and start taping them herself because that's not the media's purpose now. The media are, as I damned them years ago, are the court eunuchs. And uh, they're there to protect the sultanate class like Biden and Justin and uh, and all the rest of it. And so it's not going to come from there. It's not going to come from there. Jan Shiboot, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, although I have a feeling I haven't, says, Dear Mark, kudos for your explosive interviews about the sex trafficking business in Britain. At least the Queen has the courage to trounce one of her own, finding him unworthy and compromised. I think that's a reference uh, to the Queen's favourite son, now exiled. Uh, it does feel like the end of many things lately. What are your thoughts about last night's ghastly, potentially world-ending news about Iran, the sunny world's sponsor of terrorism, being set free by the U.S. to become a nuclear power? How do you see that playing out? Well, I'd slightly disagree with that term, being set free by the U.S. Um I I think the American moment is over. And this is again why you know in 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 part I I changed my view of things. Uh, as I've said this before but I'm you know I might as well say it again. I've changed my view of this thing after seeing the Fox News coverage of the fall of Kabul as we can now say again uh because it was pathetic to me that the American right had such difficulty grappling, couldn't really face the scale of American humiliation. And that's what it is to most of the world. Most of the world doesn't know the difference between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, if you ask them to name a senator, they'll probably come up with Ted Kennedy. That's the only, you know, they don't know a lot. They, it's, it's not Republicans. It's not Democrats. It's America. It's America that flopped out in Afghanistan. And and so then if you look at it from the rising powers point of view, even if you don't accept that China is the dominant power, China has this view that it's useful to their situation to have sort of uh, bad cops, little miniature bad cops hither and yon, to which they can be the good cop. Oh, yes, you know, I'd love... Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd see what you mean about Kim Jong-un. Uh, but, you know, I, I he's not really my responsibility. But if you like, I can make a phone call to him. Uh, and North Korea has actually been immensely useful to China in that respect. So what would it be like to have a few North Koreas seeded around the world? Well, it would be very useful... Um, and I think that's that's what we're going. I think that's that's the situation that after America. Again, this is so depressing because it's the situation I wrote about in After America and America Alone, which is 15 years ago, where the most prosperous states in history, such as Norway and New Zealand, can't defend themselves, while Basket cases like North Korea, Pakistan, Iran, 
Sudan, your basket case here, go nuclear. This isn't this isn't going to end well for any of us. Oh, no, 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 no. That's far too depressing a note uh, <laughs> to end on. I don't know how we don't know how we got to that. Um, I'd, I'd always try, I like to end on a big picture thing, but then sort of end uh, positively. Let me see if I can find, you know, one more that isn't totally depressing. Let's see. Uh, what do we got that's not uh, totally uh, depressing? Uh, uh, uh. The First Amendment. Kate Smythe again. The First Amendment to the Constitution isn't working for Joe Rogan. Uh, I... I gather that uh, whatever they're called, uh, what are are they called? Spotify have already made over 6%. They made, I think, another 80 of his shows uh, unavailable. Actually, we've got no jolly, uh, we've got no jolly questions here. Okay, I'll have to figure out another jolly way to end. So here we go. Uh, The English Comedian. Barry Cryer died a few days ago, and I can't claim him as a close friend, but at one point in my life, I used to run into him every few weeks in the green room of the Paris Theatre, Lower Regent Street in London, where a lot of BBC comedy quizzes and the like, the little parlour game shows that I used to do occasionally and always enjoy. I enjoyed them, you know, I didn't enjoy just as a participant, uh, but I enjoyed as a member of the audience. Um, but a lot, lot of those shows were taped at the Paris Theatre, Lower Regent Street, and uh, Barry would tell me jokes in a uh, conspiratorial manner, <laughs> uh, which I enjoyed, as if he was letting me in on a great secret. I enjoyed that. He was a grand survivor of fads and fashions in comedy, in contrast to, say, poor old Graham Linehan, who I was interviewing on last night's Mark Stein show, um, Barry wrote for everyone from Tommy Cooper and David Frost to Bob Hope and Richard Pryor, because he could do that. And he was a great performer, too. He had a number one hit in Finland, which he used to say offhandedly, as if it was something everybody had at one point or other in their lives, like like the Omicron. It was just going around, you know. Oh, have you had a number one hit in Finland yet? Uh, but this was in 1958, a novelty song written by Sheb Woolley, who had a monster smasheroo, uh, literally, with it in America, Britain, and everywhere else except Scandinavia, where for some arcane contractual reason, Mr. Woolley's single was never released. So if you were a Nordic fan of the song, and everybody was, Barry's version was the only one available at your local record store. Barry Cryer, all together, you Finns. Purple people leader to me. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people leader. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people leader. Sure looks strange to me. One-eyed. Well, he came down to earth and he lit in a tree. I said, Mr. Purple people leader, don't eat me. I heard him say in a voice so gruff. What eat you? 
because you're too tight. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying turkey beef leader. Number one in Finland in 1958, written by Sheb Woolley, but a hit for the late Barry Cryer. And after hitting number one in Finland, he never felt the need to release another pop single, as who would? Our Saturday movie date with Rick McGuinness is up and running at Stein Online. Sorry, our Clubland Q&A has been jumping around during 2022. As of this coming Friday, it will be moving to Fridays. Stay safe, stay free. Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.